It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel here in Brooklyn with Professor Christina Greer elsewhere in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello. Hey. And Alex Brooklyn, uh, nonetheless in Manhattan. Hello. Hello. So, so much happened in the world this week. Uh, everything changed and then it changed again. And that's just Andrew Cuomo, who went from uh, the guy who beat the uh, coronavirus and was not Donald Trump to the guy with a lot of nursing home issues that are very serious but also somewhat difficult to explain to in the last uh, week now, the uh, guy who has been accused of harassment with specifics and rather credibly in three different contexts by three different women, all of them decades younger than him, and has, having covered this all weekend, my head is spinning, already gone through a dizzying number of postures and responses to all this from I deny categorically everything to I should have some sort of investigation, but I should really pick the investigator to I should sort of pick the investigator to, okay, Tish James is going to do this. And I'm sorry if I maybe misunderstood things in the workplaces, but I'm really just a lonely guy who's working all the time. And if anyone is misunderstood, that's really a problem to what I'd call a panic silence in which the man who wants nothing more than, than to be on TV looking heroic is nowhere to be seen, is responding to things only in press statements, and is badly damaged and battered politically, and rightly so, I think. But for all the people texting and saying publicly, look, he's toast. This is it. I remember this before. I remember with Pete Trump. I remember with Pete Cuomo. I remember, you know, Joe Pococo going to jail, prison. Um, an issue after issue that was about to bring him down, and he stood up at the end of each of them. Right now, he's still the governor. He has a gigantic war chest. There's not anyone who can clearly raise money and run against him, and he does not seem like the sort of man who's just going to usher himself out of the room or that he's built to ever really admit to a mistake. So we're in this very strange standoff moment, and um, – Chrissy, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that before we turn to a, a somewhat different set of issues and our very interesting guests who are going to be talking mostly about this new book award you're also involved in and uh, about New York City issues. Yeah. So I think Cuomo's in the midst of his Governor Northam moment where everyone's like, why is this man not resigning? We've got a nursing home scandal. There's smoke. There's fire. We've got not one, not two, now three, maybe more women accusing him of sexual um, inappropriate behavior. And I think he's pulling a Northam, which is like, make me. I mean, it'll it'll pass over. I'm not going to Al Franken myself and just resign, you know, immediately because you want me to. I'm going to ride it out and see if I can, right? Because we know that the way news cycles go, something else could come up uh, that has nothing to do with him and people look in a different direction. Uh, you remember in Virginia when it was Northam, then it was Fairfax, then it was the the third in line. I mean, it was it was sexual scandals. It was, you know, blackface. I mean, all the things and all three men were just fine. So I think for for certain people who were doing a victory dance saying the king is toppled. I'm like, slow down. If there's one thing Andrew Cuomo knows, it's Albany. And not saying that 
he'll stay in, in power, but I mean, he's been there since he was 19 years old. This is the thing that he knows. There's no one who knows New York State better than Andrew Cuomo. So yes, a lot of men of his age, I think, still hide behind the, oh, I didn't know it was inappropriate behavior. Sadly, a lot of women in the workplace have this behavior that happens to them all the time. And we just, I mean, it took me forever to realize that some of this behavior was inappropriate because it happens so frequently. It's just the cost of doing business, you know, as a professional woman. So the the fact that so many women are like, you know what, we don't have to deal with this and we're sort of coming out uh, with receipts, uh, it makes it difficult for the governor, but I would definitely not say that, you know, he's he's out of out of Albany, not just yet. I, I still have to sort of wait and see how he plays the cards. Because he, he knows the be. cards. He should be. He yeah, wrote what should the happen and what law. will happen mm-hmm. are two totally different things. He, he, he wrote the harassment law. He did yeah. this while not meeting with the members of the Albany Harassment Working Group you've heard from on this show and elsewhere. He said it, falsely that it was the uh, strongest law in the nation. He said New York is seeing what happens in workplaces and this isn't okay. He said the standard isn't systematic harassment um, and shouldn't be. It, it, it's doing any one of these things. And then he puts out a statement saying, I'm sorry if anybody misinterpreted my playful right. stuff, which he called mentoring at first. He's talking right. to a 25-year-old woman. He says, do, do you like to sleep with older men? You know I'm very interested in sleeping with younger women. Um, get that tattoo in your butt. And then he says, I'm sorry if anyone interpreted that as, yeah. uh, as, as unwanted flirtation. Uh, for, for, forgive the language and in context, but like go fuck yourself. And it does remain to be seen if New York voters care. Uh, but the hypocrisy here. Not the, the, the level of wrongdoing necessarily, but the hypocrisy from someone who said he understood these things, that this wasn't going to happen in, in workplaces anymore, who went through the harassment training he mandated for every New York State employee and then does yeah. this and say, I, I didn't understand, is just off the charts. But this is the same man who starts a Moreland Commission and shuts it down when he doesn't like what he hears, right? This is a man who, you know, we know those men who hide behind the, I have daughters. I don't care. Like, you can still be a sexual predator and have daughters. You can still be an asshole and have daughters. Like, so, you know, all of the things that he put in place does not mean that he didn't abuse his own power. All of that is true. However, I'm saying for Bill de Blasio, who's, you know, living La Vida Loca this week, like, yay, I'm going to talk smack about, you know, Cuomo and sort of flirt with running for governor. Or lots of folks who are just like, who've been waiting for this moment. It's like, hey, drive slow recognize that you may be on the right side of history. You may feel like what you're doing is is correct, but don't think that Andrew Cuomo is definitely down and out. Like, let's be clear. That's just not how he operates. He's dedicated his entire life to Albany, of all things. Good for him. But I, I think that we're in a moment where we've seen powerful men walk away from the scene of a crime. I'm like... Governor Northam, like he is the model. It's from not too long ago. So we'll have to shake it out. I mean, I think it's really fascinating how the nursing home scandal is sort of in the the background because, I mean, you know, as we've talked about, my biggest concern was if we have this issue in the nursing homes after you wrote this, you know, victory lap book of nonsense, I really am still concerned about all the prisons in New York and all the other ways that you've dropped the ball for citizens of New York. So I think this is where we have to see how time shakes things out for Cuomo. But the fact that he even mustered a vague apology lets me know that he actually thinks that this is somewhat serious because 
I've never heard an apology from Cuomo, no matter what it was. So the fact that he even uttered some like mealy mouth, like, I'm sorry you thought that I may have done something that you interpreted as, it's like, wow, that's that's even more than what I thought he'd give. He didn't utter it, though. This is important, I think. Uh, he wrote it. He wrote it and, and, and passed it. that way. So this dude does not want this stuff. He doesn't want video of it. He doesn't want audio of it. He wants this to be part of uh, of like the complicated newspaper story, mm-hmm. the nerds on the podcast story. He still wants TV manly uh, Cuomo stepping up to the scene and can doing to be as untouched by this as possible. Yeah, I was curious how this is going to play in the rest of the country because it is so relegated to like NYC and the weeds nerds. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, let's be clear. You don't need men to uphold patriarchy. So there are lots of women who are going to be like, oh, come on. They're just going after another good guy. You know, he's just, because National Cuomo, TV Cuomo, COVID Cuomo is is just, you know, like the cool Italian tough guy that a lot of folks are enamored by. He's like the quintessential New Yorker. Um, he's not a bumbling idiot like some of, you know, the, the quote unquote red state governors. So he has a lot of goodwill. And we know that sadly, because there's so many powerful men that behave badly when it comes to inappropriate sexual advances and inappropriate statements towards women, younger or otherwise, I think some people are desensitized to it. And so it's just like, eh, I mean, you know, it's just a few women, girls, saying that he said something inappropriate. But like, let's also be clear. There are a lot of people who don't necessarily think that what he said is inappropriate. Why? Because they still say things like that. Or they think that it's from the movies. Unless someone's thrown down a flight of stairs and like physically assaulted, they don't see it as inappropriate. So I don't know how this, I I don't think that it plays out as harshly in the national scene as it does in New York and pockets of New York. I can tell you that this story is not lighting up the uh, traffic monitors uh, of my day job, the Daily Beast or elsewhere from people I'm talking to at other outlets outside of New York. There's a national story. It's like 60 year old guy tries to kiss younger woman. Eh. Right. And, and that that I, I run. I gave up my weekend for this. I ignored my children for this. I, I, I'm so resentful on so many levels of like uh, a- a- Andrew Cuomo's hypocrisy about having to think about his uh, his, his sad sex drives, about try- crossing mentally in my mind that back to his monologues about his daughters and the boyfriend this summer while he's, you know, pursuing a woman who uh, who played junior high school sports against one of the daughters and makes a point of telling him that as a way of being like, not sexually interested in you, boss, and he just keeps right on going. It's uh, I you know I can't tell anyone else what what, what to uh, what to think, obviously, but I am really interested to see uh, uh, how New Yorkers respond to this. What the political consequences end up being. So we are going to get to Howard Wolfson and Bradley Tusk, two people who come from Bloomberg land, among other places, two longtime astute New York observers. And two guys who are trying to do some nice things for the city in the midst of a tough moment. But before we do that, I have one other book-related note I wanted to ask Alex about, which is what's happening at the Strand? Uh, So 
at the Strand, pretty much there's some regular union busting stuff going on. Um, not that we haven't seen it in probably every newsroom we've ever heard of, but it's the whole making employees managers. Originally, there was a reason why a bunch of employees at the Strand unionized at a bookstore years and years ago. So now they're saying that basically management is making a lot of the on-floor workers, whether they're cashier or they're um, inventory or uh, they're pricers, they're making a lot of them have the title of managers, which of course is a simple tactic that separates them from actually being in the union and makes it so that they don't have like a union rep. uh, They're not entitled to the same benefits and vacation days and things like that. I'm curious to see how that unfolds just because, you know, back in the 90s, it was a big story that the Strand was like, kind of garbage mm-hmm. to their employees and uh and now we're going to see how that shapes up. Well, I, I think it's important that we sort of suss that out because the Strand is such an important cultural institution and as we talk to Howard Wolfson and Bradley Tusk, we'll bring up another important New York historical institution that we have to make sure we save and protect as well. So, today we've got Bradley Tusk and Howard Wolfson to come and talk to us about the Gotham Book Prize. It's a book award they started for an author who's written a book about New York, fiction or nonfiction. And so some of you who listen to the podcast may know that Bradley Tusk is a venture capitalist, political strategist, and writer. Uh, And Howard Wolfson is the education program lead of Bloomberg Philanthropies right now. But both of them were in the Bloomberg world uh, before de Blasio days. So take a listen. Good morning. Hello. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Thank you for joining us for the first time on FAQ, I believe. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for having us. Good morning. So I am a juror on the esteemed Gotham Book Prize that you two decided to put together to celebrate an author who writes about New York. Can you tell us a little bit more about the prize and how it came to be? You know, Bradley and I um, spent a lot of time talking about the books that we are reading and a lot of the books that we read are about New York. And uh, I came to him, well, the truth is, I came to him a couple of years ago with this idea. The idea was to give a prize to the the best book written about New York in any given year, to celebrate New York and to reward, you know, and encourage authors to write about New York. And a couple of years ago, we went to a a couple of um, institutions in the city and uh, suggested a partnership with them and and it didn't end up coming to pass and we sort of moved on and and were busy doing other things and then in the height of the pandemic I called him and said you know we ought to revisit this idea it would be a nice thing to announce given the difficult time that New York City is going through at the moment and uh, he was immediately enthusiastic so we uh, our first call was to you professor because we wanted to get a uh, we wanted to get a distinguished jury of people who we're New York experts and love New York. So we've got a great jury of people who love reading books about New York and know a lot about New York. And we've uh, selected a, uh, a short list of books um, written last year about New York. And uh, we're going to meet soon uh, collectively to decide on a winner. And, and that winner will get a uh, $50,000 prize. So hopefully we'll make a nice difference for the author and uh, we'll further the the goal of celebrating New York and what makes New York special at a really difficult time for the city. When you say you loved reading about New York and that's what inspired this, can you give us like a list of maybe your top three favorite New York uh, books? Yeah. uh, It's funny. Bradley and I did this when we were 
contemplating the award, we sort of said, okay, what, what books would have gotten this award in the past? I think my favorite book about New York is Only Kids by Patti Smith, um, which is this wonderful, I'm sure, I'm sure people have read it or many people have read it. It's this wonderful memoir of, of being young and in New York in the seventies, which, you know, feels like another country at this point for those of us who remember what New York was like back then. And, uh, I've recently had the joy of, of exposing the book to my 15 year old daughter who has embraced it really enthusiastically. So it's, it is one of these books that I think will be a, a, a classic. It's a classic memoir. It's a classic New York memoir. It will sort of span generations. I think it's just beautifully written. Um, that, that is far and away my favorite. I know, I know the, the expected answer for somebody like me is the power broker, <laughs> uh, which, which, which is a really good book. Um, but is, but is not in my view, nearly as, as profound and beautiful as only kids. What about you, Bradley? Oh yeah. I mean, there, there's so many of them. I, I tend to be a little more of a, of a fiction reader than, than nonfiction. So, uh, Mambo Kings by Oscar Huelos, uh, Fortress of Solitude by Jonathan Lethem, Invisible Man, uh, Bright Lights, Big City, Barfire of the Vanities. I mean, there are so many. You know, and, and part of what I think makes, you know, these books so important is, you know, the, all of us on this call, we live in the physical here and now New York. And, you know, how New York is doing for us depends on the streets, the sidewalks, the, pol- the parks, the trains, you know, is everything working, the schools, because we live it. Um, but there's, you know, the rest of the world knows what New York is, and they kind of live New York through this mystique that's created in literature and movies and podcasts and songs and, and, and TV shows and so many different things. And I think that that mystique is really what uh, draws so many talented people to New York from wherever they're from um, and makes them want to really be here and make some of the sacrifices it requires to be here and create pretty amazing things here. And so, you know, our, our hope is just that even as the city goes through a pretty tough time over the next couple of years, most likely, and has certainly had a hard year in the past, um, that, you know, this is something that just kind of helps keep that mystique going a little bit. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a obviously really generous project, especially for authors who um, love this city and, and want to write about this city. And I can't wait to announce the winners once we once we meet. And then, you know, it's interesting because you all have sort of become these, like, Bruce Wayne's in some ways stepping in in a time of crisis. We'll get to the Lex Luthor part in a, in yeah. a minute. But, <laughs> I'm going to mix my Marvel for all the comic book nerds out there. Yes, I'm talking about Bruce Wayne and Lex Luthor. Um, That's but all, it's, DC. It's all DC. All DC. Good. Oh, good. Uh, okay, good. Uh, all right, all I'm DC, in the ballpark. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm called worse than both and better than both every day, <laughs> so that's fine. So, real quick, my, my barber of... 30 years since I was a kid. He was my age. His father used to be my barber. He closed shop in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, He's gone. I haven't got a haircut since. (laughs) I'm due. Uh, I'm literally going to come to your house and braid your hair in like one week if we don't get a haircut. (laughs) And then I know know one other thing that happened in the midst of the uh, pandemic – this is for Howard, I think, is the Astor Place Barbers that, that's beloved by a lot of people. It was my emergency barber because I went there. I had to walk around my barber on Cortelia Road, and I couldn't, I couldn't go to Cortelia Road for the next three months because I, I couldn't see him. But uh, they, they were about to close, um, and you're part of a group that now is, uh, is purchasing the shop and going to keep it open. Is that right? That is correct. Um, 
I've been going to Astor Place since uh, I was in high school, so for a really long time, probably about as long as you've been going to your barber. Looks like I've been to my barber more recently than you have. Uh, <laughs> but there was an article in, um, I guess it must have been the Daily News or the Post, that said that Astor Place was on the verge of, of closing. And I became immediately uh, despondent because, you know, this is one of the classic New York places of my youth and classic place of a, of a lot of New Yorkers. They've cut a lot of hair over the years. And I must have posted on social media how upset I was by this. And somebody who I know who was involved in politics over the years, Jonathan Trichter, reached out and said, hey, I'm putting together a, a group to try to save Astor Place. We can put some money in and save the the place and, and save a, a whole bunch of jobs. And I was, you know, immediately enthusiastic. Um, I'd never contemplated being a partial owner of a barber before, a barber shop before, but, you know, it just felt like uh, a really great thing to be able to do for New York at this time. And uh, we, Jonathan really is the person who uh, is leading this, put together the deal, reached out to the owners, was able to effectuate the purchase and it's still going. Uh, it's been, it's been saved at least for the moment and hopefully into the future. I'm, it's doing a good business. And I think as the city comes back, especially more and more vaccinations and in the summer, uh, it's poised to do really well. And I hope that Astor Place is one of those places that, you know, will be there for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years into the future. Cause it is a, a one of these iconic New York institutions that deserves to continue to cut hair for a really long time. Well, I mean, it's so interesting because not only is it an iconic institution, but New Yorkers banding together to do something great to save said institution is also a very New York story. Um, I mean, I, I, I think one of the untold stories of, of this period, it's been a period of a lot of despondency and pessimism, understandably, but it's also been a period where a lot of New Yorkers really rather heroically stepped up and tried to help the city when the city needed it. And I think everybody has different way of doing that. People have different abilities and means uh, and different interests. But I think that, you know, a lot of the people that I know have been more charitable in the last year, have volunteered their time more in the last year, have been supportive of, you know, first responders in the last year. I, I do think that New Yorkers understood that the city was in crisis. And I think that there are a lot of New Yorkers mm -hmm. who responded in ways to try to save the city and make the city better. Um, and I think that collective energy and collective action uh, is powerful and important. And, uh, you know, I think I, 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 I'm sure all of your listeners are people who, uh, who feel that way. Right. Speaking of crises and speaking of needing leadership, I think a lot of people stepped up because they felt like <laughs> someone at Gracie Mansion either was not there or asleep. So that moves us into the, the politics portion of the podcast. And so Bradley, I want to bring you in because you maybe two weeks ago, January 20th, uh, you sure. wrote in the Daily News. So this is moving from New York City to New York State. Andrew Cuomo will get through this. You wrote a great op-ed about yeah, now, Andrew Cuomo will weather the sure. storm. Do we still stand by said, said op-ed? No, no. Said op-ed was specifically about the nursing home scandal. Um, and if, uh -huh. that's, if that's all that existed, I would stand by it and say, He'll get a fourth term. Um, I think since then, three different women have now come forward with with different, uh, you know, very credible stories about 
sexual harassment in one form or another. I think the question now is, and obviously you, you and Harry uh, have as good of a guess as Howard and I do on this one, how long does he survive? Now, I'll give you mine. I think actually Howard and I were just texting this. It's probably true for both of us. Kind of basic assumption, which is if no one else comes forward, then the independent investigation will happen. And depending on what it says, there either will or won't be uh, enough support in the legislature to impeach Cuomo. Um, I don't see him resigning unless he absolutely has to. Um, but the odds of him running for a fourth term now also seem a lot lower. Um, if another woman comes forward, especially if someone has allegations of, of a physical nature, then I would think that the investigation might not even matter and Cuomo may need to leave even sooner. So how are the mayoral candidates doing so far and how they're responding to the Cuomo news in terms of uh, tone and, and substance and so on with the possibility that whoever is mayor is going to be dealing with Andrew Cuomo for a long time and the possibility yep. that they end. Right. So I'm, I'm biased. Obviously, my uh, consulting firm is running Andrew Yang's campaign for mayor. So clearly I'm not objective on this. But look, the candidates have have by and large gravitated to roughly the same place, which is, you know, the same thing that you're seeing from Gillibrand and, and most of all, but everything else, which is do a really thorough, tough, independent investigation. And depending on what it yields, the legislature will then decide whether or not to try to impeach. Um, I, I do think that as the race shapes out and everyone is seeking their own lane, that there certainly will be some candidates who step up the pressure around that, um, either because they're just not getting traction in the election so far or uh, because their polling tells them that that's, that's the right play. But look, I think ultimately for everyone other than us, meaning the Yang campaign, um, the scandal, e- even if it seems like it presents a political opportunity to get some attention, no one's paying attention to the mayor's race outside of the people like us right now. Um, it's in a little over three and a half months. And if the Cuomo thing drags on through June 22nd and sucks up all the oxygen, it's going to make it even harder for the dynamics of the mayor's race to really change. Um, which, again, is someone working with a front runner, that's fine with me. But I, I, I don't think that this scandal is a, a blessing in disguise for mayoral candidates in any way. Bradley, I just one more one more question about this. I, I've been thinking a lot about people have yeah. talked with me about. <clears throat> so Corey Johnson, who we've had on the show a whole number of times, he was going to be the uh, the personality corrective candidate to Bill de Blasio, yes. among other things. Yeah. Corey doesn't like to totally say just yes to that, but but clearly so. Andrew Yang is now filling in that role. And uh, Corey yeah. Johnson, who was going to run for mayor, uh, but but then explained that, that he was having some real issues with depression. He had this big, important job running the council in the midst of this crisis, uh, said that he would not be, uh, was quiet for a little while. It seemed like the council was sort of running itself. And now he's looking to run potentially – um, but he's going to be at a candidate forum, and it looks very likely uh, for for controller as a late entry. Um, so, so assuming he's feeling better, uh, Richie Torres, who who you know helped uh, Johnson become yes. city council speaker, is now a member of Congress. Another guest on this show, he is co-chairing Yang's campaign. So there seems to be the, the, this really interesting triangle developing, and in a race where the front runners have these really interesting advantages. Right? There's no in-person campaigning yet. No one's paying attention. We're just a few months out. And all of them seem to actually be aligned around uh, around yourself and, and Chris Coffey and so on. So so I'm sort of stunned that, that this hasn't been yep. a magazine story or anything. 
But as somebody in the center of that triangle, I'd love to hear what you'd like to say uh, just between you, me, and our podcast audience uh, about all that. Yeah, sure. Yeah, look, I think Corey was was planning to run and I was planning to support him. We normally don't take on campaigns uh, as clients um, simply because it's just not a particularly great business model. But uh, had Corey run and wanted us to do that, I think we would have. And then uh, we were ready to go and we're happy to do that with Andrew. Um, but yeah, look, I assumed Corey was going to run. Uh, in fact, you know, I was, again, in, in your pages, Harry, publicly supportive of um, the ranked choice voting uh, referendum when it came before the city's voters in, in 2019, because in part, I felt like a candidate like Corey, who's both pretty well known and highly likable, would, would benefit from that scenario. Ironically, Andrew Yang is even better known and even more likable. Uh, so ranked choice voting, I think, works particularly well for him. Um, and look, Corey made, I, I think, the right decision for him at the time, which was he, he wasn't feeling like he was in the right mental headspace to run for mayor or serve as mayor if he won. And that was a pretty mature decision that you don't see most politicians making. And so I appreciated it, as I hope that most people did. And then, you know, I, I did talk to Corey about a week ago, I guess, about the controller's race. It, it sounds like he's leaning heavily towards it. I haven't talked to him since then, so I don't know if anything has really changed. But yeah, you know, look. In my world, if Andrew Yang were mayor and, and Corey Johnson were controller and you had two really creative, high energy, charismatic, uh, really, really hardworking people who are open to big ideas, that's what the city's going to need to come out of this. You know, I, I think the city has been run terribly for the last, you know, close to eight years now. We're in an awful situation where, you know, the return of a lot of jobs post COVID are by no means guaranteed. And you're going to need a mayor who really can think big and really is willing to try try new ideas. And so Andrew and Corey both there, from my perspective, look, you guys obviously may feel differently. I know Christina's not a fan of my mayoral candidate, but, um, you know, from my perspective, that'd be very good for New York. <laughs> I'm not supporting any mayoral candidate. I, I don't work for anyone. I just no, have but thoughts. you don't like Yang. But I know, but, I, but you, you, dislike, you just dislike the one I'm working with. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, I like people who have practical ideas. And thus far, Andrew Yang is on some marshmallows and candy canes nonsense, as far as I'm concerned. So when we say big ideas, I need to know concretely what exactly that's true. are you going to do? Well, going back to the Astor Place discussion, when this, as you said, if the city's been run horribly for the last eight years, a lot of people saw this crisis as becoming more and more dependent on Bruce Wayne types rather than on good policy. So when we talk about Astor Place being saved by like a great group of New Yorkers, that's awesome. But where is our concrete policy that would have had rents, small businesses, landlords, both residential and commercial? Where was that person? And are the new mayoral candidates prepped to be that person to weather not just the new crisis, but the fallout of this big crisis for years and years to come? Yeah, I, I look, at least from my perspective, yeah, like Bill de Blasio is not my mayor. I think I have been as publicly oppositional to Bill de Blasio as probably anybody in the city. So I'm taking absolutely no responsibility for the fact that he has run the city extremely badly uh, for the last seven plus years now. And, you know, we shouldn't have to rely on people individually to step up. But look, same time people are doing it, I'm opening up a bookstore on Orchard Street and a public podcast studio because... 
it felt like a thing that I could do for New York right now that would be nice and I can afford to do it. And it'll create not a lot of jobs, but probably six to eight jobs and a podcast studio that anyone can use for free. And so, look, it's great when people are, are, are able to do things like that. And I'm fortunate that I can. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, we had a mayor who, quite frankly, in, in de Blasio, really did know city government very well. He was a councilman. He was the public advocate. Uh, and I think then turned out to be, in my view, maybe the worst mayor we've ever had. And so this notion of we need people who are longtime city kind of politicians, career politicians and bureaucrats. You know, Mike Bloomberg, in my view, was a pretty good mayor. He hadn't spent a day in his life in government uh, until he stepped into city hall. And so to me, this correlation that um, being of the system uh, is somehow going to enable you to t- lead New York City out of this. I-, I think it's, if anything, it's the opposite. Howard, let's bring you in really quickly. Um, obviously, you can't answer this, but I still want to ask it. What's our good friend Michael Bloomberg saying? Who does he like? Um, he's concerned about the city. Um, look, I think I think from rich to poor and and back again, there are a lot of New Yorkers who are concerned about the city. They may be concerned for slightly different reasons, but... I, I think that the city is is really at something of a of a crisis point. You you all talk about it every week. You know, coming out of COVID is going to be extraordinarily difficult. There's a lot of the city's uh, economy that depends on large numbers of people coming from other places and uh, spending money here. We have a lot of middle class jobs that are vitally dependent on on tourism, and it's really hard to see that sector of the economy coming back uh, anytime in the next couple of months. Maybe, you know, with enough people vaccinated, we'll get more people coming from the United States here. But it's the, the number of overseas visitors is likely to be low for a really long time. And, you know, without tourism, the city's economy really doesn't work. You know, if you, if you look at sort of the long term arc of the city's history, we lost an enormous number of manufacturing jobs in the 50s and the 60s. We didn't replace them in the 70s or the 80s. Finally, around the 90s, we began replacing those blue-collar union jobs with a lot of blue-collar union jobs in the tourism industry. And if those jobs disappear, those are all middle-class jobs in this city. Those are all gateway jobs. And uh, the next mayor is going to inherit you know, that crisis and a crisis around confidence in policing and a health crisis laid bare by the enormous inequities wrought by COVID. And so, you know, look, I'm biased. Uh, I worked for Mike Bloomberg. I think Bill de Blasio essentially inherited a municipal version of peace and prosperity. Uh, The next mayor is not going to be inheriting peace and prosperity. And I think that this election is in many ways uh, as consequential as one that we have had in my lifetime. And you know, I think that the uh, we have a front runner, as Bradley said, uh, but I also think that that as New Yorkers tune in, there will be an opportunity for another candidate or candidates to make their case. And it will be really important uh, for people to be able to do that. So we know you two both have to uh, to run and we appreciate you taking the time to uh, to close this out. I've got a, a two part kicker here. I think I know who number one is going to be on the second part, uh, fairly enough. But here we go. Looking forward, is the first job of the next mayor to run New York better or to re-envision how New York runs? It's question one. 
And question two, another daily news thing. The candidates just answered this, but I'm interested in yours. Please give us your ranked choices for the last five minutes. So, so I, I worked on the ranked choice for you, obviously, um, but but I think I see it a, a little differently. Um, I would I would keep Koch in the top spot. Uh, actually, I'd put Mike in the top spot. Koch second. Keep Rudy last because he's a crazy person. And then probably Dinkins three, De Blasio four. Howard, how would you do it? Um, I think I'd probably agree with that. Um, I, I, I'd probably agree with that ranking. And his number one job to uh, re-envision or to run New York City? I think it's to, uh, Harry, I would argue, and Howard might feel differently, but it's, it's to re-envision simply because it's not coming, however it comes back post-pandemic, it's not coming back exactly the way that it was, right? And, and, and my great fear, and, and Howard made this point earlier, is if, if the reason why New York survived the downfall of manufacturing in the U.S. is because we're the white-collar capital of both the U.S. and, to a certain extent, the world. But that same aha moment that manufacturers had in the second half of the 20th century when they realized they could make their same products in uh, Taiwan or Mexico instead of Detroit for a fraction of the price, uh, I think a lot of employers who have big offices or headquarters in, in you know, either Manhattan or Brooklyn or somewhere in New York City had that aha moment of we don't have to be in New York, but we don't have to be anywhere. And even if, you know, 25 percent of those office jobs don't come back either because they've moved or they become fully remote or people just change their policies. Do you think about all of the other jobs, the retail, construction, security, everything else that rely on those jobs? We're going to have to reimagine uh, our economy and our city, because if you just try to run it, run it back the way it was pre-COVID, it's not going to work. So I was in Midtown uh, last week. I had to sign some papers. Uh, it was Monday at 11 o'clock. And it was less crowded than a typical Sunday in Midtown in August. It was like a ghost town. And I went into a, a very large office building. Um, I imagine that the GDP of that, of that office building is probably more than many cities in this country. A lot of economic activity typically occurring there. I did not see a single another human being other than the security guard who checked me in the entire time I was there. I didn't see anybody else in the lobby. I didn't see anybody else in the elevator. I went up to the floor that I was going to. I didn't, I didn't see anybody on that floor. And you know, where did all that economic activity go? And to Bradley's point, it's gone you know, 50 other places. And if the next mayor can't bring that back, we're going to have real problems. Um, and that again, gets to why I think that this mayor's race is, is so important. But to your specific question, I think the answer is both. The next mayor really has to manage the city, but he also has, he or she, has to reimagine the city that he or she is, is, is managing. And I don't think one or the other is going to suffice. I think we're going to need somebody with management chops and with real vision and creative thinking to get us out of this mess. Hmm. There's no chance the Midtown is coming back to what Midtown was. Zero. The idea that we need the density of office space we've had, the people commuting in in, in the same rhythms and patterns, like that ship has sailed. And there's no chance that without that, we're having any sort of quick recovery. So you have this interesting dynamic where you need to rebuild the city, start bringing new industries in. There's not any one obvious thing that comes close to, uh, to, to filling that. 
Some of this will be useful creative reinvention. You know, you're going to have commercial spaces opening up in different ways, office spaces converting to different uses. Uh, but but it's just pretty obviously we reached some sort of peak for uh, uh, for density, for speculative global finance flowing into cities. And we're going to have to hit something else. I think whoever is the next mayor, as you were saying, de Blasio inherited a very good hand just, just in terms of the financial condition the city was in. He was able to shift where some of the money was getting spent and had, had all sorts of buffers to, to do this. There, there was a uh, cash reserve, uh, healthy finances. I think things were generally functioning. Um, whoever comes in, you know, it's like fixing a ship while you're sailing it is going to have to be doing a lot at once in a leaky boat with the state in the, the same circumstance. So I'm hopeful that there's going to be real opportunity for reinvention here. And I hope whichever one of the uh, the people who thinks they want this job is going to get punished if they has it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's up that, for this challenge. That's a good point. I, I, I will say, Harry, is because now that my day job these days is, is actually as a venture capitalist and politics is just sort of a, a hobby, um, <laughs> I do think that there is a moment to really step up the efforts uh, around the tech sector here, um, in part because one of the reasons that it's hard for New York to have the Amazons and Microsofts and Facebooks of the world as homegrown companies is it's just too expensive to start here for most companies, right? And I do think that you could take that plethora of empty real estate that Howard mentioned, and if you had a mayor that said, great, you know, every startup that's got a, a good viable idea, they're, you know, halfway decent, we'll arrange for cheap or free office space in those places. Or, you know, there are a bunch of things that I think a really creative mayor could do, but it is really going to require, as you said, thinking about things very differently. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. This Indeed. podcast, yeah, by the way, is brought to you by by cryptocurrency, blockchain, and space books. <laughs> so, so we're all we're all for those tech dollars that way. Um, but but really do appreciate it. I hope you'll come back uh, to talk more once Chrissy's been a good juror and we have our, our first winner of this. <laughs> we'll new have award. a winner in a few weeks. I'm excited. We'll a- I'm very excited to announce that on the podcast. All right, guys. Hey, thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Please come back. This was was really fun. F- FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan. A special thank you to our guests, Bradley Tusk and Howard Wolfson, to discuss the Gotham Book Prize. Also, our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week.